This is season two of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 2.0, Sign of Zeta. Welcome to the second season of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a listener-supported podcast about Gundam. All of Gundam. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 107 patrons. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest patrons, Doug B., Rory G., Darren S., Jonathan H., and Bro Builder. Patrons, depending on level, get a shout-out on the podcast, entry in all of our seasonal giveaways, recognition on our website, access to a patron Discord, bonus content, behind-the-scenes exclusives, and physical Mobile Suit Breakdown merch, like art prints, pins, and t-shirts. Find out more at GundamPodcast.com Patreon. A special MSB shout-out to Sean H. and Donald H. for reviewing and recommending us on Facebook. Reviews are a huge part of how people find new podcasts. One of the best ways you can support us is to write a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks also to John C. for sending us The Tale of the Heike, one of the books from our wish list. You too can contribute to the podcast by buying us research materials, copious amounts of tea, and other things we need behind the scenes. The link to our wish list is at the bottom of our homepage, GundamPodcast.com. I've already started reading The Tale of the Heike, but I haven't yet been able to figure out how the story of two competing warrior houses fighting over who gets to dominate a weak and decadent civilian government might relate to Zeta Gundam. <laughs> I was actually the one who strongly suspected Tale of the Heike would be useful. I've read parts of it in my academic life. Uh, glad to hear Tom is already feeling the vibes. <laughs> Whether you listened along with our coverage of First Gundam in Season 1, or you're just joining us now, this seems like an auspicious time for a refresher on who we are, what this is, and why we're making it. If you are joining us for the first time, you can go back and start with First Gundam if you want the complete Gundam and Mobile Suit Breakdown experience. But you don't need to. For the benefit of anyone starting with Zeta, we are going to end this episode with a very abridged recap of First Gundam that covers everything we think you need to know to start watching Zeta. This is something we plan to continue doing for each season, and we hope it makes Gundam feel more accessible to new fans. But first, that refresher I mentioned. Who are we, anyway? I'm Nina, longtime anime fan, but prior to this project, something of a mecha anime skeptic. I'm watching all of this for the first time. And I'm Tom. I've been a mecha lover since the first time I saw a Transformer when I was around four years old, and I've been a Gundam fan since the first time I saw a trailer for Stardust Memory on a VHS copy of Escaflone. I've seen all of this before, but now I'm taking a closer look and realizing just how much I missed the first time around. Back in September 2018, Nina and I launched Mobile Suit Breakdown with a simple but daunting plan. 
At the time, Mobile Suit Gundam, the first entry in the sprawling Gundam franchise, was a few months shy of celebrating its 40th anniversary, and we were inspired to start watching Gundam from the beginning. All of it, every episode, every movie, every spin-off and parody and animated short, in release order, from the first episode to the very last. But we wanted to do more than that. We're taking Gundam seriously, and that means analyzing the narrative and artistic choices, looking into the people and companies behind the show, and discussing its medium, messages, and methods. We are also going to research the real-world history that Gundam references, the contemporary context in Japan and internationally when each entry in the franchise was made, and the real-world science behind Gundam's ever-evolving vision of the future. Every episode of Mobile Suit Breakdown features deep dives into interesting questions raised by the show, and what we learn from our research helps us all understand Gundam a bit better. And we also bring on expert guests, physicists, clinical neuropsychologists, fight choreographers, and lots more. This is a podcast about Gundam's stories, but it's also about the story of how the overlapping influences of fans, creators, studios, corporations, sponsors, world events, and even the show's own legacy all worked together over four decades to create Gundam as we know it today. It started out as an irreverent, subversive, unpopular TV show about a gloomy nerd struggling to overcome a hostile status quo where every adult and every representative of power and authority was at best indifferent and at worst actual space Hitler. <laughs> Today, it is anime's most storied franchise, a venerable and profitable institution in its own right, wholly dominated by one of the biggest corporations in the world and responsible for selling more than 500 million plastic model kits. How did that happen? And how has the change in its circumstances changed its art? And what does Gundam have to say about its own transformation? Like we said way back in our very first episode, before season one started properly, Gundam has not always been good, but it has always been relevant, always been thought-provoking, and always had more going on under the surface than it seems at first glance. But after nearly four decades of practically non-stop creative output, there is an astonishing amount of Gundam out there. So much that new fans can be intimidated and not know where to start. Well, you can start here with us. This is a podcast about exploring Gundam, whether you're doing that for the first time or all over again. You don't need to know the deep lore. I don't. And if there's some bit of obscure Gundam knowledge that's too interesting or relevant to ignore, we'll explain it here for you. And we're not going to spoil anything for you either. We're watching the show episode by episode and covering it the same way in the podcast. Since we started this project, we have gotten a lot of questions about what parts of the Gundam franchise we're covering, and in what order. I know we said all the anime, and in release order, but Gundam's been around long enough and produced enough material that even seemingly clear rules like those can be hard to apply in every case. So, we developed some rules governing the project. We explained these rules back in episode 0, Gundam Podcast Rises, but the process of actually making the podcast over the last 39 weeks has helped us to refine them a bit, so we wanted to share the new version of the rules with you now. First rule, we are going to cover the Gundam anime. That includes the TV shows, movies, direct-to-video OVAs, and shorts like Evolve. We are not attempting to cover manga, novels, or video games. We might talk about them. We already have some, and I'm sure we will again in the future, but only when they're relevant to the anime that we are covering. Second rule. We are going to watch everything in release order based on the date of the first episode. When there's overlap between multiple series, like when 8th MS Team overlaps with Gundam's Wing, X, Endless Waltz, and Turn A Gundam, 
Wow, it overlaps. Five different series overlap <laughs> in some way or other. We aren't going to interrupt a series that was meant to be watched as an integrated whole. That means we'll finish Wing before covering the first episode of 8th MS Team, and we'll finish 8th MS Team before starting X. We want to understand these shows by looking at them in the context of the time when they were made, and in context with the other Gundam shows that were made previously, but jumping back and forth between multiple shows is too confusing. Third rule. If a series gets recut into a compilation with significant changes, we are going to treat that compilation as a separate episode within the same series. So, we will watch it after watching the original version of the series, but before moving on to the next thing on our list. There is, however, an important exception to this rule that is now very relevant. Almost all of the compilations were made within a year or two of the original but the A New Translation compilations for Zeta Gundam were made 20 years after the show. We are going to treat those, and anything like them that gets made in the future, as a separate entry, and we'll cover it when we get there. In Zeta's case, that means when we get to the year 2005. Fourth rule. If there is a compilation that does not make significant changes to the underlying work, we'll make a case-by-case decision about whether to watch the original or the compiled version. Tom tells me this includes something called Endless Waltz and Thunderbolt. Fifth rule. When something has been remade after its original release, like Seed with its HD remaster, we are going to cover the original and the remake simultaneously. Covering only one or the other would feel incomplete, and while the context that produced the remake is naturally going to be different, the later work is still most interesting in how it reflects on the original work. The only way to really dig into that is to cover them both at the same time. Sixth and final rule. What we can't find, we can't watch. And that's the quick and dirty version of it. If you go to our website, GundamPodcast.com, you'll find a link to our watch list and progress tracker, listing more than 1,000 episodes, shorts, and movies that make up the 28,660 minutes of Gundam anime we plan to cover. And here's how we're going to do it. Every episode of Mobile Suit Breakdown starts with a recap of the Gundam episode or episodes that we are going to cover that week. We cover one or two episodes at a time, depending on whether we think the episodes are better analyzed separately or together. Then Nina and I discuss our first impressions of what we watched, in a section we call the talkback. After recording the talkback, we always walk away with long lists of questions and ideas to explore. We decide what we want to research, and we hit the books. When we're done, we get back in the studio and share the results of that research with you, so every episode ends with those research segments. Our topics for First Gundam ranged from the bureaucratic regime that governed revenge-taking under the Tokugawa shogunate in Edo-era Japan, to the shocking biography of star animator Itano Ichiro, to the surprisingly early origins of the term Common Era. Moving on to Zeta Gundam means moving forward in time, from the late 70s, when First Gundam was made, to the mid-80s, when Studio 2 of the company then called Nippon Sunrise decided to make another Gundam show. A lot happened in the intervening years, both in Gundam's Universal Century and, perhaps more importantly, in our world. Before we jump into Zeta Gundam's first episode, Kuroi Gundamu, or The Black Gundam, next week, let's take some time now to catch you up on the context. Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam first aired in March of 1985, 
So my focus will be on happenings in Japan and the world from 1980 until 1984, early 85. I won't be going into deep detail. What I'm hoping this loosely organized list of events will do <laughs> is give us all a feeling for the time. What was on people's minds? What were their hopes and worries? What was life like? So let's start big. World politics. Dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we hit a period that was called the Second Cold War. The Cold War had never quite ended, but had thought out. Relations had improved, basically until you get to President Reagan and Prime Minister Thatcher, <laughs> who took a much more combative attitude toward the Soviet Union. Both sides became much more militaristic. Both sides started supporting insurgencies and counterinsurgencies in various places. The civil war in Afghanistan is a big example of this. The Vietnam War had left a really bad taste in the mouths of Americans at home, and Reagan's preference for quick, low-cost counterinsurgency tactics to intervene in foreign conflicts was usually more popular, but not always. <laughs> The United States intervened in the Lebanese Civil War, invaded Grenada, bombed Libya, and backed the Contras against the Sandinistas, who were the communists, in Nicaragua. There were assassination attempts against President Reagan and Pope John Paul II in 1981 and Prime Minister Thatcher in 1984. There were also successful assassinations, uh, one of Indian PM Indira Gandhi in 83 by a Sikh militant, which led to anti-Sikh riots that killed thousands of people and displaced tens of thousands more. There was also the assassination of Liberian President William R. Tolbert Jr. in a coup, and of Egyptian President Anwar Sadat, who was shot during a military parade. Argentina invaded the Falkland Islands in 1982, kicking off a 10-week conflict. War was never declared, <laughs> though I believe it's called the Falklands War. Yeah. Uh, this was between Argentina and the UK. The, the thing that killed me about this is it ended. Most of the people who live in the Falklands are immigrants from the UK. So they, they want to stay a UK protectorate. The islands are much closer to Argentina. Both sides, I think, continue to claim sovereignty over them. <laughs> uh, it's in the Argentine constitution that those islands belong to Argentina. So I guess everybody just ignores the actualities. I don't know. It's weird. <laughs> There are a surprising number of islands that are treated that way. Both sides are like, it's ours, but let's not fight about it. Right. They're not, <laughs> they're not worth anything, really. <laughs> but to give them up would be intolerable politically. 1984 saw Desmond Tutu receive the Nobel Peace Prize for his activism against apartheid in South Africa. He had been nominated four years in a row. And there was a sense that they should give it to someone in South Africa because of the attention apartheid was getting. But he was deemed the less inflammatory choice uh, as opposed to giving it to Mandela or some other people who had been you know, imprisoned for their activist activities. So a system of brutal colonialist oppression where one race of people institutionalizes abuse against another. <laughs> Was in the news when Zeta Gundam was being developed? Oh, yeah. All over the news. Hmm. Meanwhile, <laughs> Israel was at war with Lebanon. Iran was at war with Iraq. South Africa was engaged in a border war with Angola, Namibia, and Zambia. Lebanon was in the midst of a civil war, as was Sudan. And the constant, irregular, or low-level war in Ireland, called the Troubles, continued. 
Canada gained official independence from the UK in 1982. <laughs> and Vanuatu, Kiribati, Zimbabwe, Antigua and Barbuda, Belize, St. Kitts and Nevis, and Brunei all gained independence from their colonial governments. Military dictatorships in Argentina and Uruguay were replaced with democracies. South Korea's president ruled as a dictator for most of the decade, and at the time, the Philippines were still being led by dictator president Ferdinand Marcos. He was not ousted until 1986. Economically, privatization and deregulation under Reagan and Thatcher, as well as in lots of other major world economies, destabilized international trade. Would you say this was a period when major international corporations were starting to eclipse national powers as the primary drivers of economic policy? I wasn't going to go that far, but you're welcome to. There's <laughs> <laughs> also a period marked by very troubled labor relations. There was an air traffic controller strike in 1981. Reagan fired over 10,000 air traffic controllers who refused to go back to work and gave them lifetime bans on working for the federal government. Like, that's the end of your career if you're an air traffic controller. There aren't private air traffic controllers, really. Many of them were able to appeal that, and it was later, I believe, like, scrapped completely by Clinton in the 90s, but just devastating for the strikers. And there was a miners' strike in the UK in 84 and 85, which was the largest strike in the UK since the general strike of 1926. There was a severe global recession in the early 80s, with inflation in the U.S. as high as 14.76% at one point, and debt crises in developing economies, you start to see a lot more countries taking out loans from the IMF at this point, the International Monetary Fund. If you take a casual sort of glance back at U.S. history, one of the things that always sticks out is how much more valuable money used to be, that a dollar used to go a lot further back in the day. This period of hyperinflation in the 80s is basically when that changed. This was a period of economic stagnation in the Soviet Union that led to some of the opening up that we won't see until the mid-80s. China began to open up its economy and shift to a more market socialist system for certain industries. There was widespread fear in the United States of Japan's economic strength. There was all this concern that they were buying up a bunch of U.S. real estate. Their cars and electronics were displacing American products. If you've ever seen the movie Rising Sun, uh, this is a sort of like suspense thriller starring, of all people, Sean Connery, Wesley Snipes, and Harvey Keitel. It's, uh, it's very <laughs> yellow peril, which I just realized we've never talked about and probably need to at some point. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> If you're wondering why in cyberpunk everything is very Japanese-infused, it is because the genre and its conventions date from this period, when people were afraid that Japanese industry was just going to take over the U.S. economy. For the very first time, trans-Pacific trade equaled transatlantic trade, which is wild because now we know that trade with China and the Pacific region is massive and very important for the United States, but up until this point, it really didn't compare to trade with Europe. <laughs> On the science and technology front, the space shuttle Columbia launched in 1981, and there were various interplanetary probes to Jupiter, Saturn, Neptune, and Uranus during this time. In medicine, the first baby conceived through in vitro fertilization was born in 1981, which it's now crazy is... crazy that that's so recent. <laughs> it's so commonplace 
we don't even think of it, but must have been mind-boggling at the time. Yeah. AIDS was first recognized by the CDC. In consumer technology, the first IBM PC and MS-DOS both launched in 1981. Uh, For those of you who may be on the younger side, MS-DOS is an operating system, (laughs) a very old text-based operating system. (laughs) If you're old enough to remember the phrase graphical user interface, DOS (laughs) didn't have one. Graphical user interface was a selling point for post-DOS operating systems. The Commodore 64 came out in 1982, and the first Macintosh computer came out in 1984. The first commercial cell phone, which I remember being lovingly called a brick, (laughs) so that was about its size, shape, and weight, (laughs) came out in 1983. Uh, VHS decidedly killed Betamax and set the standard for recorded video. And that, although not yet, is going to have huge implications for the Gundam franchise going forward. The first audio CD was released in 1982, and not perhaps relevant to Zeta, but very interesting to me, Musical Instrument Digital Interface, which we now just call MIDI, was invented in 1981, standardizing synthesizer interfaces for use with equipment from different manufacturers. Hmm. On the environmental side of things, the hole in the ozone layer was identified in the 80s. Global warming became a widely talked about phenomena in the 80s. And a poison gas leak at the Union Carbide plant in Bhopal, India in 1984 killed 3,000 people immediately and 15 to 20,000 people in its aftermath. In arts and popular culture... The popularity of arcades continued. Pac-Man was released in 1980. E.T. was released in 1982. I haven't had a chance to look into this yet, but I know that Spielberg is very popular in Japan. His films tend to do very well. What I'm curious about is, did E.T. get a Japan release? Did it do well there? Was this the start of his popularity, or did that come later? Um, (laughs) Another point that is probably not relevant unless Zeta comes to involve extreme sports. (laughs) But in 1982, a 14-year-old kid named Tony Hawk became a pro skateboarder. (laughs) Uh, We are still many years away from Eureka 7. I don't know what that is. It's not Gundam, but it is Mecha, and it has... Extreme sports? Sky spaceboards. Wow. Sky surfing surfboards. MASH ended in 1983. A patron has asked us about MASH as a possible influence for Gundam, but we haven't had a chance to research it yet. The first ever MTV Music Awards happened in 1984. MTV made music videos and images as important as the music itself, and this decade is characterized by a shift in companies thinking about music as intellectual property. rather than just, like, music, art, entertainment. That actually has implications for Gundam. I believe it. You may be surprised to hear that the video game market in the United States crashed in 1983. Maybe sometime you can get me to talk about Atari. (laughs) It may surprise some of you to hear that I went to business school, and one of my favorite case studies ever was about Atari and why they failed. That's also Gundam relevant. But by the end of the decade the video game market would be back and stronger than ever and dominated by Nintendo, as in 90% of the market share to Nintendo. 
The Famicom, renamed Nintendo and bundled with Super Mario Bros., was released in the United States in 1985. And in fashion, we see a lot of perms, mullets, and high-top fades, (laughs) shoulder pads, acid-washed, very tight jeans, aviator and jean jackets, off-the-shoulder and cutout shirts, leggings and leg warmers, and a lot of Ray-Ban sunglasses, uh, both the Wayfarers and the aviators. I believe from some of the memes I've seen (laughs) that uh, one of our characters does rock a pair of aviators. Makeup was aggressive, shiny, colorful. We'll see if those fashion trends (laughs) show up in Zeta Gundam. In Japan specifically, the economy was booming. They had very low unemployment, but very high consumer prices. The real bubble economy wouldn't hit until later in the 80s. However, the aging population was already becoming very evident. Birth rates were lower, median ages were higher. It's when they started to realize that because of shifting in the size of families and in the fact that more women were working, the elderly were less likely to be taken care of by a family member and they really needed to invest in supportive housing and facilities and homes for the elderly. There was a lot of internal migration in Japan. However, the urbanization of the 50s, 60s, 70s, so that concentration in large cities, was replaced by what they called U-turn or (laughs) J-turn migration. U-turn migration is when you leave home to go to a large city for university or work, but then you come home later. And a J-turn is the same thing, but rather than going back to your small hometown... Your furusato. Indeed. You return to a regional city in your home prefecture. The government was doing a lot to promote development in smaller regional cities to keep these prefectural economies vibrant and to prevent all the economic activity and people from concentrating in a handful of big cities. Environmentally, there was one large tsunami and several volcanic eruptions in the early part of the decade. In arts and popular culture, anime and manga became more mainstream and more economically significant. Uh, Studio Ghibli was founded in 1985 after the success of Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. New Type Magazine was first released in 1985 as well. It covered anime and manga, it had columns by industry insiders, and had a TV guide-like insert with TV schedules and synopsis for anime and science fiction shows. I believe New Type launched either a week or a month after the first episode of Zeta aired. Classic. Yep. No coincidental connection between those two whatsoever. The first ever OVA, or original video animation, called Dalos, was released in 1983. OVA are a very interesting part of the anime industry that I hope we will talk about some more soon. We definitely will. (laughs) We are not far off from the first Gundam OVA. Uh Uh-huh. The style influences in... Japan were a little different. Preppy style was very popular. I think of it as sort of yuppie casual (laughs) for the 80s. Uh, A style called Yokohama traditional or Hamatora. Hamatora was popularized by rich, very proper college students. It's the sort of look where to have it down, you need a specific purse, a specific pair of shoes and clothes from a specific brand. 
It's very knee socks with loafers and skirt, collared blouse, wool sweater or cardigan. It was also called the Ivy League look. You also start to see something called Crow Tribe or Karasu Soku, which is to say dressed all in black, head to toe. <laughs> the punk boom of the 70s ended, but fashion was still heavily influenced by popular music. And there were a lot of young people imitating the fashions and hairstyles of famous bands and idols. And we also start to see kawaii and otome fashion take off. So that's cute and maiden fashion. This is the kind of thing that's characterized by voluminous clothes, lots of ribbons and frills, lots of pink and white and red. What a terrifying but brightly colored world the 80s is. <laughs> First Gundam is the heart and the soul of Gundam. And no matter where the series has gone in the intervening decades, people always come back to First Gundam. There are always new side stories set in the margins of First Gundam's one-year war, or new takes on the events and characters. Even Zeta, set seven years in the future, is a show about wrestling with the memory of the events of First Gundam, both for the characters within the world of the Universal Century and for its creators in our world grappling for the first time with the legacy of Gundam as a franchise. And it is going to be Zeta, looking back on First Gundam, that will define for most fans what First Gundam was, and what Gundam is going to be. If you want to understand anything in Gundam from this point on, you have to understand Zeta. But why does Zeta exist at all? Why, four years after the release of Encounters in Space and the seeming conclusion of the story, did all of Gundam's stakeholders decide to make a sequel? By now we all know the basic outline of the Gundam franchise's story. The TV show performed poorly, but its execution was delayed by the efforts of passionate fans, and then it was revived when obscure toy maker Bandai decided to use it as the vehicle for their new line of plastic model kits. Strong sales led to one movie, that led to two more movies, the model kit sales reached frenzied levels, and Gundam went on to be a commercial juggernaut, producing around $700 million of revenue for Bandai every year. But there are plenty of successful anime that never get sequels, and for four years after Encounters in Space finished its run, it must have seemed like Gundam was done. And the thing is, if you read between the lines, it seems like all the major stakeholders, and when I say that, I mean Bandai, Sunrise, Tomino, and the other creative leads from First Gundam, like Yasuhiko and Okawara, it seems like none of them wanted to make a sequel to Gundam. After all, Tomino famously killed Amuro in the novel version of First Gundam, <laughs> since he thought there would never be a sequel. But even though none of them wanted to make another Gundam show, Three interweaving stories from the four-year gap between Encounters in Space and Zeta would push all of them to the point where each one decided they had to make what they were at the time calling Gundam 2. First, Tomino. During the 1980s, he was coping more or less effectively with a condition that he refers to in interviews as his psychosomatic disorder. The Japanese for this is probably Shinshin-sho, a general term for any kind of physical and psychological disorder. To hear Tomino talk about the symptoms, it sounds like some combination of anxiety and depression. And it was no doubt related to the unbelievably punishing workload he bore during those years. Back in the 1970s, Tomino directed all or part of six TV shows, 
which worked out to an average of about 17 episodes a year, plus some additional storyboard work on two other shows early in the decade. Between 1980 and 1984, he directed four TV shows for an average of 48 episodes per year, plus six movies, and wrote the first draft for yet another series. Some of those were successful to one degree or another, but nothing ever quite captured the lightning the way Gundam had. He describes himself at this point as running around like a chicken with his head cut off, and when he had a moment to breathe, he felt as though he would never be able to make anything ever again. I can't know, but from what he's said, it sounds like he threw himself into his work to try to distance himself from his demons, and then became so burned out that he all but collapsed. But what might have been even worse than all of that was the realization that Gundam's success meant he was once and for all stuck making giant robot animation, a genre he did not enjoy and had once hoped to escape. He looked with jealousy at his old friend and rival Miyazaki Hayao's recently released Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, and he knew that it would be impossible for him to ever make an anime like that. I was left wondering what to do, he once said, and I fell into despair. That's when they came to me with Zeta Gundam, or, well, Gundam Part 2 at that point, and I realized that I already had the label of giant robot Tomino. With that realization, I had to put some careful thought into the idea that this was the career I'd have for the rest of my life. It's not anything to be proud of. Everything Tomino says about himself makes me so sad. I just want to give him a big hug. Somebody let him make his passion project. Something with no robots in it. He has a granddaughter now, and he watches Magical Girl anime with her, and has occasionally talked about wanting to make one. I would be all about seeing what sort of Magical Girl anime Tomino would make. Yeah, I really want to watch Tomino's. Oh my god. Please, someone. (laughs) I'm sure there are anime executives listening to our (laughs) podcast. (laughs) Give Tomino the budget to make a magical girl anime. In the intervening years, despite his frenzied work schedule or perhaps because of it, Tomino's relationship with Sunrise had frayed. His relationship with his own work had become hostile. His mental health was precarious, and he had no idea what he was going to do next. Then Sunrise came to him and asked him to return to Gundam. He would, but he was a very different Tomino now, and he would make a very different Gundam. Second, Bandai. Today, Bandai Namco is the largest toy company in the world, with a market capitalization of around 1.2 trillion yen. It owns Sunrise outright and controls just about every aspect of the Gundam franchise. But back in the 1980s, Bandai was just one medium-sized toy company among many rivals in Japan. In 1980, the company's founder and president, Yamashina Naoharu, retired from active management of the company, and he was replaced by his 35-year-old son, Makoto. That's really young. Yeah. Dang. Mm Mm-hmm. The younger Yamashina was ambitious and aggressive, and he immediately purged the old senior employees from the company. Snap. All of this, his young age, the hereditary succession, the dismissal of so many experienced employees, was hugely controversial and Makoto found himself obliged to promise that he would resign the presidency if Bandai's performance suffered. In short, he needed a big hit, and soon. Convenient, then, that Gunpla exploded in popularity shortly after he took the helm. He also pushed hard to expand overseas, in part because he had worked in the export department before rising to the presidency. As a side note, one of his early uh, successes overseas, even before he became president, was in France, 
where sales of Bondi's giant robot toys contributed to their decision to support a French dub of Grandizer, which became Goldorak and was instrumental in kicking off the Italian anime craze we talked about back in episode 1.36, Implications. But if Gunpla was the craze in the first years of the 1980s, it was quickly eclipsed by something else, something new. In 1982, undeniably influenced by Gundam and employing one of its star animators, Super Dimension Fortress Macross burst onto the scene. It was immensely popular, and it set a new paradigm for Mecha. Macross took the giant robots of the 1970s, but instead of the combining Mecha that had dominated ever since Getter Robo came out in 1974, Macross had its robots, called Variable Fighters, transform freely from robots to vehicles and back. The toys were a huge hit in 82 and 83, but they were a huge hit for Bandai's competitor, Takatoku Toys. Never heard of them. By 1983, sales of giant robot toys were falling, and Gunpla was losing its luster. Then in 1984, an alliance between two toy companies, the US Hasbro and the Japanese Takara, followed the Macross transforming toy boom with the Transformers a staggering smash hit of a toy line powered by Hasbro's marketing muscle and Takara's ingenious transforming toys. These toys had been around for a while under different brand names like Diaclone, but it was the Transformers, with their accompanying Saturday morning cartoon made by anime powerhouse Toei Animation, that turned them into a market-warpingly massive hit. I had no idea that Transformers was Toei. Mm-hmm. But it was, you know, another big hit for another of Bandai's competitors. And meanwhile, over at Sunrise, they kept pumping out mecha shows. Shows sponsored by Takara and Takatoku, but most often by Clover. Remember Clover? They were the toy company that missed the boat on Gundam, to Bandai's great benefit. Well, they tried again and again, sponsoring Tomino's combat mecha Zabongol and Aura Battler Dunbine. But they couldn't catch a break. In 1983, they folded. Emboldened by the success of the Macross toys, and no doubt looking hungrily at the Transformers, Takatoku doubled down on making the best transforming robot toys they could. They sponsored Galactic Whirlwind Sasuriger, a show about a mech that transforms into a train, and Super Dimension Century Orgus, which despite its name is not a sequel to Macross, but more of a spiritual cousin that never quite managed to equal its forebear. This didn't work. A minute ago, Takatoku had the hottest toy in the market and an anime that redefined mecha animation. But in early 1984, just a few months away from the release of a Macross compilation movie that they had once hoped would turn everything around for them, Takatoku also went under. And Bandai certainly benefited from these bankruptcies. They snapped up the rights to many of Clover's toys and to some of Takatoku's groundbreaking Macross toys, but they have to have looked around at their competitors, gambling on new properties and losing big. They have to have looked at the declining sales for Gunpla, and worried about their own fate. Third, Gundam itself. The final story I need to tell is about the Gundam franchise, because the Gundam franchise did not actually sit idle between Encounters in Space in 82 and Zeta in 85. Bandai understood perfectly well that the only way to keep Gunpla kits selling was to keep introducing new mobile suits. So, in 1983, Okawara produced a series of designs called Mobile Suit Variations, or MSV which included a mix of new designs like the freaky Agugai and mashups of existing mechs like the magnificent Zaku Tank, which answers the vital question, what if Xeon had built a gun tank? <laughs> Inquiring minds must know. <laughs> I'll show you some pictures later. But MSV was just a design collection with no narrative to back it up. 
1984, with no new Gundam on the horizon, manga publisher Kodansha Comics, along with Okawara and one of the scriptwriters from First Gundam, started collaborating on a manga side story set during the One Year War that would be called MSX, or in Japanese, Emu Ekusu. They announced the project and even published the first designs, before Sunrise announced Zeta. Worried that MSX would conflict with the new anime, Kodansha cancelled the project. But meanwhile, besides looking for new sources of new mobile suits to make Gunpla out of, Bandai went looking for fresh customers for the Gunpla they already had in stock. Remember those international ambitions Yamashina Makoto brought with him when he took over the company? In 1983, Bandai representatives started working with a now-defunct Hollywood film studio called Lion's Gate on what would have been a live-action American-made film adaptation of First Gundam, powered by state-of-the-art 1983-era CGI. Just take a moment to imagine it. <laughs> the project was still in its infancy, although they did have concept art and a script that you can go and read today if you want to. We'll link to it in the show notes. When one of the other rights holders, possibly Sunrise itself, found out about it and shut the whole thing down. This was back in the early days, when the rights to make anything Gundam were so fragmented and distributed among so many different companies that serious wrangling was required to get everyone on board. And that is probably what killed another could-have-been-Gundam project. Back in Japan in 1983 or 1984, Bandai started talking to Daikon Films, a nascent anime studio that was just a few months away from becoming Gainax, aka the Kare Kano studio. You thought I was going to say the Evangelion studio, didn't you? Well, they did that too. <laughs> they ended up collaborating to make Royal Space Force, the wings of Honeyamise. But when they first started talking, Daikon Films proposed something very different. They wanted to make a series of direct-to-video episodes about those mobile suit variations designs. Bandai eventually told them no, and while we can't know this for certain, I strongly suspect that Sunrise shutting down the Hollywood Gundam movie was the reason Bandai balked at letting Daikon Films work on MSV. If they were going to sponsor more Gundam, it would have to be with Sunrise. Gee, I wonder why Bandai ultimately bought Sunrise. Hmm... And now those stories come together. Bandai, frustrated in their attempts to wrest control of the Gundam franchise away from Sunrise, and looking at declining Gunpla sales as other toy companies collapsed all around them, needed to work with Sunrise to make a new Gundam series. And not just a spiritual successor, Takotoku had tried that and failed. They needed to make a Gundam sequel. Sunrise had just seen two of their major sponsors, including longtime ally Clover, go bankrupt and it was scrambling to keep control of the Gundam franchise. Besides, nothing they had made since then had quite captured the magic like first Gundam had. They needed to make a Gundam sequel. Tomino was at the end of his wits. Fundamentally unwell, he was watching his hopes of doing anything with his career outside of mecha animation crumble. His relationship with his studio was near the breaking point, and he didn't know what to do next. When they asked him to return to Gundam, he too realized he needed to make a Gundam sequel. For those of you who either have not watched Mobile Suit Gundam, or who have already forgotten, 
a recap of the most significant events of the first series. The year is Universal Century 0079. Humanity has built hundreds of space colonies, called Sides, and moved its burgeoning population out into the cosmos. All humans are governed by the Earth Federation, but resentment builds as the spacenoids feel their concerns are ignored by the wealthy political elites governing from Earth. Side 3 declares itself the Principality of Xeon, and, in what begins as a fight for independence but becomes a war for domination of humanity, goes to war against the Earth Federation. In the first few months of the war, the destruction and devastation kill half of the total human population. Zion Dekun, for whom the Principality is named, fought for Side 3's independence and believed that new types, spacenoids who had developed new but as yet poorly understood powers, represented the future evolution of humans. Before he could expand on his plans, he was assassinated by former ally Degwin Zabi. Zion Dekun's children, Kasval and Artesia, were forced to change their names and go into hiding. The Zabi family, Degwin's children Girin, Dozel, Kaecilia, and Garma, all serve in Zion's military. And while Degwin remains sovereign, he is actually just a figurehead, while the real power in government is held by his eldest son, Girin. Girin believes that spacenoids, especially those from Zion, are superior to other humans that democracy has led to bloated and ineffective bureaucracy and a decadent population, and he plans to kill off lesser and inferior humans when Xeon wins the war. Our story begins on Side 7, an almost complete cylindrical colony. Though the population wanted to stay neutral, the Federation forces have built a research facility on the side. Xeon forces, led by ace mobile suit pilot Shar Aznabal, attack the side in an attempt to gather information or even capture the new Federation mobile suit, called Gundam. One young man, Amuro Ray, whose father is among the scientists working on the Gundam, jumps into the abandoned mobile suit in an attempt to defend his home, but the battle causes so much damage that all the survivors must evacuate the side, leaving home aboard the Federation ship, White Base. During the attack, we learn that Shar Aznable, known throughout the galaxy as the Red Comet, is none other than Kasval. He has changed his name and joined the Xeon army, in a quest for vengeance against the Zabi family. His sister Artesia, now known as Sela Mass, is among the Side 7 refugees, fleeing her damaged home. The massive casualties of the surprise attack mean that Amuro and his friends and neighbors, Gentle Fra, Sarcastic Kai, Mysterious Sela, and Reserved Hayato, must join the young officers of the White Base in fighting off the Xeon forces and getting everyone to safety. With Mirai Yashima, scion of a prestigious family, at the helm, cheerful and solid Ryu Jose as mentor, and young ensign Bright Noah out to prove himself as their commander, they fight and survive through the long months of the war. Their journey takes them to Luna 2, across the Earth and back into space to neutral side 6 and the space fortress Solomon, Shar and Amuro become fierce rivals on the battlefield, as technological developments and combat experience shift the balance in one or the other's favor. Our white base crew are used as guinea pigs by Federation brass, become skilled pilots, and grow up. Along the way, they adopt three Side 7 orphans, Kika, Katz, and Letts, and lose beloved friends in battle. 
they learn that new types are not all alike, but do all have incredible powers of awareness, seeming to anticipate and react to things faster than humanly possible, and that many of their own number, including Amuro, Sela, Mirai, and the orphans, are new types themselves. The most powerful new type they encounter, Lala Soon, is Char's protege, an orphan raised to be an even more incredible pilot than he is. A young woman experimented on by Xeon in the interest of creating more powerful and deadly weapons adapted to new type abilities. Meeting her seems to unlock previously untapped depths in Amuro's own abilities, and he is able to get the upper hand on Char. Lala dies, shielding Char from a deadly strike from the Gundam's beam saber. Despite the death of her physical body, her powers allow her to live on in the ether, in a place where she can see all of time. At last, the White Base crew find themselves at Xeon-controlled Space Fortress Abawaku, one part of a massive Federation offensive. Although Giran Zabi begins the battle full of confidence, the tide soon shifts in the Federation's favor. However, the White Base has crash-landed on the fortress and is being overrun. Between the explosions that riddle the base as it comes apart, and the enemy soldiers on all sides, it is Amuro's new type abilities that allow him to guide them all to safety, telling them when to retreat. In turn, Kika, Katz, and Letts guide him out of the ruins and back to the crew. It is a joyful reunion with his found family, and this proves to be the last battle of what is later called the One Year War. And what of Shar? His betrayal led to Garma Zabi's death, and he killed Kaecilia Zabi himself. By war's end, all of the Zabis are dead except for Dozel's infant daughter, Minerva, and the Principality of Zeon is replaced by the Republic of Zeon. Shar has achieved his revenge. But what about his other plans? His desire for a world where new types are not simply weapons to be used against each other, one where they rule themselves. It seems impossible that he could have escaped the flaming and exploding ruins of Abawaku. But then again... Next week on episode 2.1, Back in Black. Side 7 can't catch a break. The first appearances of Anger Boy and the Tetons. Not Char, not Fra, and the Not Gundam. Another red mobile suit. Another white spaceship. Another punctured colony. Another mother complex. And more new type stuff. You will see the tears of time. Make sure you do all of the podcast things. Subscribe, share, review, and pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown for free on fine podcast services everywhere and on YouTube. Join us on Patreon for great bonus content, access to the MSP Discord, and to support the podcast. Just go to GundamPodcast.com slash Patreon. You can follow us on Twitter at Gundam Podcast, on Instagram at Gundam Podcast, and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast. And you can check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for all our episodes, show notes, and more. Plus, you can email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or shout your wrong Gundam opinion to us in person by coming to scenic New York City and yelling, Camille is a girl's name, on any busy street corner. 
We'll totally hear you. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. But then again, again. And you didn't think you'd be able to tell the story. That was awesome. Oh, thank you. We need to do more research on the influence of turtlenecks on the 80s. To the surprisingly early ur- origins. <laughs> we look like real weirdos when it comes to beverages. Because so we've always got like a water or a juice or a water with lemon. And then I've also <laughs> got tea. And like... You have to have the right selection of beverages for every mouth requirement. Physicists is a hard word to say. <laughs> <laughs>